Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. My name is Paul J. In a few seconds, I'll be back with the man who knew too much, Thomas Drake. We're going to talk about the 20th anniversary of 9-11. In 2015, I interviewed Thomas Drake, a former senior executive of the National Security Agency and one of the more important whistleblowers in recent years. The interview was titled, From 9-11 to Mass Surveillance, The Man Who Knew Too Much. The five-part interview is on the front page of the analysis.news, and I think it's one of the most important interviews I've conducted. On this 20th anniversary of 9-11, I urge you to watch all five parts for an explosive look into the role of the NSA and the Bush-Cheney White House in suppressing intelligence that could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. It's also an important discussion about the roots of the national security state, more or less from 1947, that led to the massive apparatus that exists today. I also urge you to watch the interview I conducted with Senator Bob Graham, who was the co-chair of the Joint Congressional Committee investigating 9-11. Graham was convinced that Bush and Cheney not only knowingly allowed the attacks to take place, but in some ways facilitated them. Graham came to believe that the, quote, intelligence failures were by design, engineered mostly by Cheney. Thomas Drake went public about secret surveillance programs and for that was charged and almost went to jail. That story is also found in the interviews I mentioned above. Drake is a decorated United States Air Force and United States Navy veteran who worked in many capacities within the national security state. He started a new job as senior executive for the NSA on September 11th, 2001. That's right, his first morning of work was the day of the attack on the World Trade Center. He reported directly to the number three leader of the NSA, the Signals Intelligence Director, Maureen Baginski. That put Drake in position of having access to some of the most critical intel acquired by the NSA prior to 9-11, although he saw this data after the fact. Here's a short segment of my 2015 interview with Thomas Drake. I was never actually uh, interviewed for the 9-11 Commission. Why? I, because I think my testimony was so explosive, it was smoking gun evidence of NSA's culpability. Yeah, just to remind people, we talked about this in an earlier segment, that the NSA actually had uh, eavesdropping hard evidence of the connection between these guys, two people that, two guys that end up on the American Airlines flight in San Diego, and what was known as a Yemeni uh, switchboard for Al-Qaeda. Um, and I'm sure much more than that. It's, oh, actually far more. That was just one part of it. There was actually an entire intelligence report that they had done prior, months and months, it was actually in early 2001, that NSA refused uh, to allow it to go out for distribution to the rest of the community and the analysts were beside themselves. I didn't find out about it until uh, shortly after 9-11 when it was brought to me. What was in it? The entire network that we knew at that time based on signals intelligence. The entire network that the winds entire up doing the 9-11? movement, yes. Not every single hijacker, but most of them were known. Yes. Well, I got to return to something we talked about earlier. There's a back channel to Cheney you can't sit on this stuff. Of course not. Well, watch the earlier That's segment, the other we, intelligence. We talked about this. That was the other intelligence network. 
he couldn't trust what was set up from 1947 on. This is one of the ironies of history. Cheney himself could not trust the, the early alert and warning system that had been put into place in 1947 in which we would never have another electronic Pearl Harbor. He unless, had, unless you want one. Well, he so, knew it would take something like that. I'll just, we're going to put it right on the table again because we keep saying it. He knew it would take something like a 9-11 in the 21st century for Americans to just cede to the government whatever was necessary to deal with whatever happened. To give this... Pearl Harbor did to, for us, for our entry into World War II, what 9-11 did in terms of what was unleashed in secret. That included mass surveillance, that included the torture regime. Now, the, the, and everything else. And of course, everything else included the invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, many other wars that followed. It also led to a massive expansion of the national security state, including spying on Americans on a scale never imagined before. Now joining me again, 20 years after 9-11 and six years after the previous interview, is the man who knew too much, Thomas Drain. Thanks so much for joining me again, Tom. Uh, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. So that quote that I that I played from our earlier interview, has anything in your mind changed about what you said then? Or has your thinking gone further six years after the interview, 20 years after the event? No, I mean, I just, you know, time and distance has not certainly has has not uh, led me any differently in terms of my thinking. Um, I think of anything, it's, I've just become much more, what's the word? I'm trying to think of a word, uh, which I'm usually, uh, usually don't fail at, but it seems like yesterday, right? I mean, because this is 20 years on and I realize it's just a date in the calendar, but for me, that first day on the job, not knowing exactly what was going to happen, obviously, uh, later that morning, it feels like yesterday. I mean, I, there's been a whole lot of things that are being published, uh, documentaries and commentary and new books and everything else uh, regarding 9-11. Uh, but 9-11 for me is a huge event it, for, for those of us uh, who lived through it know exactly what we were doing on that day. And for, for my, in my case, in my particular case, I was at NSA, it was my first day reporting to my new duty station. And I can play back that day, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, you know, day by day. And then obviously month by month, especially the first few months, um, it was clear that this was gonna be a huge, history-shaking event, and it was a failure. It was a failure, a systemic failure, to provide for the common defense, as that's in the preamble of the Constitution. That's a piece of paper that I took an oath to support and defend four times in my government career. And so the fact that this entire apparatus was set up uh, to provide indications and warnings so things like this wouldn't happen. And if they were in the progress of happening, you would have enough intelligence, hopefully, to blunt, stop, or prevent it. 
I can tell you the system was blinking red. I mean, it's you know, as I look back on the years prior to that fateful day, there was more than enough indicators that something big was afoot, particularly in the last few years, uh, starting in 1998. George Tennant himself had sent out a memo to the intelligence community that I read, rem remember reading in 98, saying the system was blinking red. And yet it still happened. And I think it really became... It became a significant event of historical proportions, not just because of the failure, but because of what it created. The fear led to total overreach uh, by the US government in particular. And there was people in very high places that used 9-11 as an excuse uh, to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do or would have been much more challenging to get away with. Um, in terms of a torture regime, a mass surveillance regime, and essentially setting aside the law of the land and national security rules were going to apply, that everything was now being driven by American exceptionalism, and it would rule the day. And Cheney, Cheney had his excuse. Cheney, in essence, had his excuse to restore the full power of the imperial presidency because he always thought that Nixon had gotten a raw deal. Well, actually, I wasn't going to go there until later, but you mentioned Nixon uh, and, and Cheney was very involved in advising Ford uh, to pardon Nixon. Uh, and I, I was just recently watching uh, All the President's Men, the movie, and there's a line at the very near the end of the movie, which I, I didn't get the import of when I watched the movie when it first came out years ago. And it's such a reveal, and then they don't do anything with this line. And I haven't heard many people talk about it, but uh, I, I don't know if it's Bernstein or Woodward. One of them says, I guess to Ben Bradley, and they're all in on it. And Bradley says, well, who are you talking about? The entire intelligence apparatus. Maybe not exactly those words, but close. Uh, they're all in on this with Nixon. And that's it. No one follows up on that line. Uh, and, and then I, I, in, in my conversation with you, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, Nixon took the fall for all of this, but if it's true that the whole intelligence apparatus at the very least knew what Nixon was doing and was in on covering it up, uh, that that's quite a statement. Yeah. I mean, I'm well aware of the theories that have been banded about, uh, regarding 9-11 and I've had to deal with a lot of the conspiracy theories in particular, that it was an inside job that was known ahead of time. Um, I think it's important to note that although there, there are continue to remain some critical questions that are largely unanswered, the fact remains that the failure actually led to a massive cover-up of what was actually known, that there was in fact intelligence uh, regarding the plot and as you indicated in your previous interview of me going back six years, I'm well aware of because of what I ended up uncovering and discovering uh, regarding the lead up to 9-11, what NSA itself actually knew about the plot. Uh, for government officials to claim uh, that there was, they didn't know or couldn't have imagined uh, is, is literally a lie. Um, but on the other hand, I can also tell you that there was 
a lot of stovepiping, that information itself uh, was regarded as power. And if I had something that, you know, that I know that you don't know, uh, that gives me power over you. So why would I share it? And part of the dynamic here is that critical information was not shared because certain government agencies did not know what others would do with it. The irony, of course, if it's true indications and warning, and I was classically trained uh, during the Cold War period, you are to report it up through and to include the national command authorities. How else are they going to know? Unfortunately, a lot of information ends up being buried. A lot of information ends up being recast. A lot of information uh, ends up being ignored. Um, I, I remember the, one of the interviews that I did with one of veterans of World War II the present day uh, is part of my sentencing. I had 240 hours of public service that was actually handed down by the by the judge in my particular case. The you know the government went after me for violating the Espionage Act. I didn't end up in prison, but I did interview as part of the sentence. It was a pro forma sentence, one year probation, 240 hours community service. I ended up interviewing one of the. Uh, in fact, he was the only one that remained at the Oahu radar station north of Pearl Harbor on that fate, other fateful day of, of 7 December 1941. He literally issued a warning. He knew that what he saw in his radar scope, which at the time was top secret, it was newfangled technology, but he did his duty. He actually, the duty to warn, and he contacted uh, Schofield Barracks uh, per protocol, but he was ignored, dismissed. And some people suggest that was uh, deliberate, not just uh, miscommunication. Yeah, well, some do. I, I tend to, in the fog here, that you know, he just didn't want it to be real. He didn't want it. He didn't consider it. Remember, this is the front line telling him, the, the duty officer, uh, we have actually have enemy airplanes coming in. Uh, you need to issue the, uh, the warning and also let everybody know. Well, that didn't actually happen. Um, and I, I, interesting enough, there was a huge cover-up. They tried to prevent that information from ever being made public. Um, Joseph Lockhart is his name. And it, there was that moment where I actually asked him, well, what if your warning had been heeded? What if your warning had actually been accepted? And there was just this extraordinary pause. You, you just felt history was with the what-ifs of history. Uh, were rushing in to say, yes, it would have been a very different outcome. I'm the first to acknowledge, however, that Roosevelt was actually looking for an excuse to get the United States uh, into World War II because the isolationist movement, basically all the, because of what had happened in World War I, there was a huge segment of the population that did not want to engage any foreign entanglements. Pearl Harbor cha changed that overnight. And so once 9-11 happened to come all the way forward to 2001, uh, Cheney and company, uh, and he was really the shadow president, particularly for national security, they now had their excuse. And they, they also had their new enemy. This now, in essence, really brought the entire apparatus, both sort of the, the hidden shadow side of it, plus what's in open, uh, to bring to bear 
and they could unleash the full power of the executive. Remember, Cheney said that president's power was essentially unlimited. Whatever Article Two said, especially during wartime, had unlimited power and Congress could not do anything about it. Well, let's dig into that in just a minute. Go back to that morning. Uh, you start work at the NSA. Later that day, the attacks take place. Uh, how long is it after that that you see what the NSA actually had, that they actually knew what was coming? Well, there's a whole, there's a whole story here and multiple threads, right? in terms of this was clearly a crisis that was not just a basic world crisis. This was something far, far larger. Uh, within hours, in fact, uh, rumors were already uh, being whispered hours and days of the actual uh, attack. The dropping of the two World Trade Center towers, obviously the, the hitting of one of the planes in the Pentagon, we know Shanksville, but that ended up, you know, because of because of the passengers actually taking action themselves. Uh, so that was headed for D.C. as well, reportedly was headed for for the uh, Capitol building. Um, so, you know, I knew I sorry twice I knew you end up looking into Pandora's box, this entire, you know, it's opening up in front of you and now you're seeing evidence that actually shows uh, what the government is starting to do in response to the failure to, to provide for the common defense. And a whole series of, of secret, super secret executive decisions uh, were being made uh, that I became familiar with uh, within days and weeks of 9-11. It culminated in a confrontation that I had with the lead attorney uh, in the Office of General Counsel, NSA. I mean, I literally said, what are we doing violating the law? What are we doing uh, essentially suspending the Constitution? Um, and just setting it aside, he said, you don't understand, Mr. Drake. You know, the White House has approved the program, and that's what it was referred to um, internally. And that's the mass uh, surveillance program. Yep, and it is all legal. So it is clear that the verbal authority had already been given to go way over the lines that were drawn based on a whole lot of stuff that came out during the 1970s that led to two standing intelligence committees to quote unquote, provide oversight of the secret side of government as well as the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, of 1978 uh, you know, that went into law signed by the president at the time, you know, is Jimmy Carter. So uh, this is all supposed to, because of violations, outright brazen violations uh, of the constitution and the fourth amendment. Uh, of course, now it's 9-11 and they were just looking for any excuse to set aside all of those constraints and anything that would bind the government uh, even in secret in terms of what it uh, what it could or couldn't do. And so this enormous power of NSA was actually unleashed and all the existing constraints were essentially lifted. And then I did not know at the time, I found out later that that same first, the week that I confronted the Office General Counsel, although he did not tell me this at the time, Bush actually had signed a, a super secret 
um, presidential finding executive order uh, actually giving NSA the full uh, authorization uh, to conduct, I can only call it mass surveillance. It goes by other euphemisms, but essentially the United States would now be regarded as no different than a foreign nation for the purposes of electronic surveillance. So if, ne if necessary, NSA, and particularly in partnership with certain telcos, some of these arrangements which already pre-existed 9-11, uh, some of the most secret of the state secrets of the United States were greatly expanded in the aftermath of 9-11. And so vast, uh, just vast amounts of data were pouring into NSA or being provided to NSA or give, being given access to NSA because the whole thing was we, we just need the data. They could be anywhere, right? We just need the data. So the, the fear right and then the response the the extraordinary overreach was it doesn't matter who has the data it doesn't matter whether the data is supposedly protected or not it doesn't matter what the rights of people are or not we just need the data so the obsession was and i will call it obsession was wherever we can get data we're going to get it because you, we don't want to, We want to make sure we don't miss anything, and it's the one of the great ironies of 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 nine eleven. Well, they, that that they actually had the data. And, we and, actually and, did have the data. I, so when is, when did you become aware of that? What did you see, and what what did you think when you saw it? I mean, you, you're looking uh, at it and you say, "What they had it." Yeah, I still shudder because. I quickly, I quickly discovered what NSA actually knew, but then NSA went into just like the Watergate, right? It wasn't so much the crime, in this case, the crime of, of keep, not keeping people, right? So you're not keeping people out of harm's way. Now you're going to actually violate their rights as, as an excuse under the blanket of national security. I, I found out within just days and weeks precisely what information um, and in the following months and is it as this whole thing began to metastasize behind behind the scenes behind the by behind the veil of secrecy right especially national security uh, that huge you know blanket I began to find out and discover and ironically enough in part I was also tasked right uh, because there was this whole question, why did we let this happen? How could 9-11, we have this massive intelligence complex, national security complex that, that was created formally in 1947, you know, during the first part of the Cold War, how could we have allowed this to happen? I mean, you would think, right? You would think. So I discovered that NSA was had had critical intelligence regarding the plot that was was not in fact known, or parts that were known were not shared uh, with those who could do something about it. Or as as in that clip I played suggests the normal channels of reporting were bypassed and the normal channel of reporting would have been to Richard Clark, who's supposed to have been the anti-terrorism czar. But we now know both from you and from other interviews I've done uh, that Cheney had created his own channels. He had a back channel. Where he had, 
I, I'm the first to acknowledge that. I actually spoke to someone in that channel uh, early on as I was, you know, the horror of finding out what was actually going on, except that channel was corrupted. It was in complete confirmation bias. It was simply, it, you know, this we're talking cherry-picked intelligence or simply satisfying uh, Cheney's obsessive need to find anything that was a quote-unquote smoking gun. Um, this led to obviously strategic decisions that were completely, I mean, never should have been done. I mean, there was no, we did not have to invade and occupy Afghanistan. We did not, there was, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, just the horrific tragedy uh, of and treasure and all and you know the umpteen tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people that ended up being killed it was all unnecessary but it was it was considered to be what was necessary in response to 9-11 and there were people literally in the highest levels including in that channel this chain I'll just say the Cheney channel who simply wanted revenge. All they were, you know, they were, they, we just need to pound people into the ground. We need to punish whoever, it doesn't matter. You have to remember Bush was making statements that even countries at Harvard, right? It wasn't just individual terrorists, it was actually entire countries. When I interviewed Bob Graham, and I, we, we talked very directly about Bush and Cheney's role, and, and I said to him, uh, I asked him, are we talking about directly facilitating a culture within the intelligence agencies that created the silos? And, and then I, I, I believe in at a later interview with him, after I had talked to you and you talked about the back channel concept, I asked him quite specifically, was this after 9-11 or before? And he said primarily before that the role of Bush and Cheney in facilitating the attacks primarily were before 9-11. Afterwards, it's about cover-up, cover-up the role of the Saudis. Yeah. No, an argument can be made he was looking for an excuse, but I'm just telling you in terms of intelligence apparatus, counterterrorism was not a priority. Richard Clark himself was incredibly frustrated. He also got cut out, right, as you, as you implied, or more than implied, but it was not a priority. I can tell it was all backwater. It was... Look, the, the intelligence community was still looking for the next threat. They did not consider asymmetric threats to be real threats, despite the horrific events that had already preceded 9-11. I mean, you had Kenya, Tanzania, you had Cobar Towers, you had the coal bombing, all and a, and a number of other terrorist incidents that should have been a huge wake-up call. Um, but it's true, Cheney himself going in, right, they did not trust the traditional, I'm going to say traditional in quotes, intelligence community. He And he obviously had long experience in government, so he was going to carve out essentially his own channels. But that actually made the problem worse. I have to tell you that. It really did. And ironically enough, it cut off a lot of the critical intelligence that was actually available in terms of the plot. Well, Graham, who's co-chair of the 9-11 committee, uh, congressional committee, was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He told me with no, in no uncertain terms, yeah. it's all by design. They wanted the, the chaos between the 
various intelligence agencies. Yes, and, no, and, that, and so and, you, yes, I, I, I'm not disagreeing, but you create these very conditions in which surprise occurs, right? You create the very conditions in which you're looking for something that you can take advantage of. Um, and remember, I actually was a material eyewitness, a material eyewitness for the joint inquiry. That was the, the, the combined Intel committee inquiry into 9-11. But as I was told later, what I gave that committee, hours and hours and thousands of pages of documentation, right? Uh, I was under, I, you know, I had to, I was deposed, right? Um, I was told later that what I provided the committee was so secret that it couldn't even be in the secret report. There was a massive, massive effort to cover up what the government actually knew, should have known, and didn't do with what was known in regards to the plot. They literally covered up their own, their own irresponsibility and their own unaccountability and how they were not going to let some, even though I was a senior executive, right, reporting to the number three, they were not going to let someone upset all that, right? There was obviously that meant these were dirty secrets that even within the secrecy arena, we couldn't really talk about. There is no record other than I was interviewed. There is no record of my testimony. The last time anybody tried to track this down was they were told by the, by the, the select Senate committee uh, that it, the archive, basically the archivist, that it was with the National Archive. But it looks, this is like the Indiana Jones, right? Where you see, you see in the warehouse where it's in a box, right? And it turns left and it disappears. Um, that evidence, that evidence uh, was buried incredibly deep. I'm also, I'll just share this because it's, it's little known. There was actually a full scale, what do we actually know? And what do we need to hide effort at NSA? And it was a multi-volume study. It's the one thing of all the things I was able to discover, uncover, find, hooker by crook, even through internal whistleblowers, NSA, not just myself, others that were greatly concerned about how far, you know, off the rails we were going. I never got a copy of it other than I made direct reference to it to, to the investigators. They, as I understand it, were never able to get a copy of it either. Um, so this should tell you something. It should tell you how far NSA even itself was willing to go to keep actual evidence of what it should have known and what it actually did know um, in terms of its own culpability with respect to 9-11. Because if your report, your testimony had been in the report, the obvious question would have been, why haven't you asked the leadership of the NSA did you tell anybody this? Now, yep. you know, you know the argument that there's so much data coming in and we, you know, how could you keep track of it all? You said the analysts were pulling their hair out, screaming, why hasn't this been reported? Why isn't something made of what we've got? So it's not well, like- You can imagine a whole lot of report. I mean, this people are coming, this is after 9-11. I'm now in at NSA, right? So they're coming to me because that was part of my job at the time. 
uh, was they're coming to me with evidence of things that they had been working on, including formal reports. And yet it was never released for wider distribution beyond NSA. And I remember, I remember it was just, I, I again, this is another one of these events where I, sh I shiver goosebumps. I confronted my, my supervisor, the number three, Maureen Beginski, with this report. And she got incredibly upset with me. She says, I wish you had never brought this to my attention. The, why? Because she would, not, she would not have plausible deniability that it, that it existed. When in fact, I was actually bringing it to, to her attention. Um, they did not want anybody to know what was in fact known. Um, look, and, and this is this is this is early on. I mean, we're we're talking just in those weeks right after 9-11. What I haven't shared yet is several months later, I was able to wrangle a couple of million dollars. We were never some there was phenomenal technology that was never put into the fight because it was internal corporate politics. And the best of NSA, right? had actually solved the big data problem. I, I can tell you that right now. We actually ended up taking one of these technologies, greatly expanding it rapidly. I mean, this is back when I was doing system and software engineering. We actually took this, took this program and actually pointed it at NSA's main databases. This is the collection databases. So there's a whole slew of them going by various names. Um, we actually turned it on and it was incredible what was discovered. This is something I've actually talked about in the past. Uh, even more information, right? As we went into the core of NSA's collection databases, what NSA should have been able to find out or discover. But it just, again, it wasn't a priority. We started to report it and guess what happened? shut down. See, you know, this idea that this kind of attack and so on wasn't a priority and the Bush administration was more concerned about, you know, uh, Russia and China and this and that big power politics. I don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is because we now know with, with certainty that the real priority was the invasion of Iraq. That was always the plan, always the plan. And if that was always the plan, it wasn't about big power rivalry. It was how do you get the American people to go for an invasion of Iraq? Well, no, and and that's where the Cheney network uh, clearly uh, received incredibly biased uh, spun intelligence to actually provide the excuse that Iraq was the big, big threat and we had to invade and then some. It could just be what you know first the first uh, Bush had done, but under the second Bush, we were just gonna take out Saddam, period, and occupy Iraq. No, it's, it's clear. I mean, I, I this is, again, having been there, uh, we took the eye off the ball, even going after Osama bin Laden. I mean, all kinds of assets that were in Afghanistan pursuing uh, Osama bin Laden actually got redirected. There, there's enough that's come out in, in the intervening years, even 10 years ago. The incredible frustration of even some of the special forces, and I'm just saying special forces in quotes, uh, that they were, critical resources were not being provided to sustain their efforts because we're gonna go into Iraq. 
I know. I, I, I was in Afghanistan making a, I made a film in Afghanistan in the spring of 2002 when I interviewed a guy who was on the Central Council of the Taliban, or had been. He quit. Uh, but, I mean, one of the things he told me is that the Central Council actually did vote to hand over bin Laden uh, in, a, in a meeting against the wishes of Mullah Omar. Uh, then a second meeting's called with a senior representative of the Pakistani government who talks them into not turning bin Laden over. Uh, one can only assume they didn't want a show trial. But he also told me there was on one morning, not long after that meeting, uh, something like about 2025 or so beautiful new white pickup trucks and SUVs calmly drove out of Kandahar heading for Tora Bora you know, with Bin Laden and his gang. I mean, anybody could have seen it. You didn't even need, like, a satellite. And, of course, he wasn't touched. No, and it, it, raises, it raises any number of questions. It really does. In fact, remember, there's the famous Rumsfeld. We don't, we don't, we don't uh, negotiate surrender. The Taliban actually were willing to, this is shortly thereafter, were willing to surrender, but they, that was the last thing we were going to enter into was any kind of arrangements. I mean, there's just this is part of the tragedy. I I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's just stunning, the myopia, the extraordinary uh, hubris that was that was being displayed by the Rumsfelds of the world. Um, but Iraq, there is no question. Iraq took on far greater import and importance in terms of 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 political military policy. We're going to go in. And then Afghanistan, yeah, okay, so it became America's longest war. But the fact remains, it took, you know, it took almost, you know, 10 years before we actually, quote unquote, took out Osama bin Laden. Um, and yet, you know, he was considered to be the, the, the ringleader, the master in, you know, in, inspirator, to call, it, call him that, uh, in terms of the plot uh, behind 9-11. And remember, we have to forget, you have to also... 15 of the 19 hijackers were, were Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian. Um, I, it, it's, this is all, this has now come back again. Uh, there's now apparently Biden has claimed they're going to review uh, long classified uh, intelligence with respect to quote unquote FBI investigations of Saudi involvement. Uh, this is another thing that has been carefully protected over over the intervening years is actual Saudi involvement. Well, that was in Bob Graham's final report. They had this famous 28 pages that were redacted, finally came out. Uh, and even the ones that came out were, again, largely redacted. But Graham was Graham was absolutely convinced that Prince Bandar, who was the Saudi ambassador to Washington, uh, not only facilitated it with money, they had actual phone uh, connections between uh, Bandar and, and a place uh, and a ranch Bandar owned that had a connection to some of the people that end up on the airplanes. Uh, they had all kinds of Saudi ties. And, you know, everyone knows Bandar's nickname was Bandar Bush. And there's this famous photograph of him and George Bush on the terrace of the White House smoking cigars two days after 9-11 with more or less smiles on their face. Uh, the, uh, but one of the things Graham told me when I, when I suggested to him or asked him, was, was this a culture not wanting to know created 
amongst the agencies? Was there a deliberate si a siloing of information by design from Cheney? And he said, yes, but he says it went beyond that. And he gave me an example, which I thought was astounding. Um, and after I did this interview with Graham, I offered my interview, the video, to all the news organizations of any size for free. All they had to do was give me a credit. Nobody would touch it. And on camera, he says that when the CIA memo, Bin Laden plans to attack America, when that comes out, and uh, the CIA gives it, and Condoleezza Rice has it, it goes to Bush. He said in the normal course of things, in the next day or two, there's something called a principles briefing. And anything in the presidential briefing that might have to be acted on for national security interests by any of the agencies uh, should be in the principles briefing. And, you know, if the FAA has to raise a level of alert or, or you name it, uh, he says that in the principal's briefing following the presidential briefing, it was omitted, the CIA report, Bin Laden plans to attack America. And he says that has to be a very conscious decision, because in any normal course of the protocol, it should have been in the principal's briefing. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, it's just interesting even seeing some of the documentaries that are that are being broadcast on um, both mainstream media as well as others. Um, there's a whole lot that's being avoided or it's not included. And that's, this is extremely uncomfortable. I mean, you can imagine if you're deliberately withholding actual intelligence, and this is part, partly what I live with for the rest of my life, right, is the what ifs of history, uh, then you, you have corrupted the system. Uh, there is no objectivity. You're actually using it from if to manipulate and end to the your ends justifies the means right so um it's <laughs> the means here uh can easily be twisted and enormous pressure uh to either downplay or leave off to the side anything that actually may require real action particularly when you have other principles involved where you can't keep it close hold or too close hold because you actually have to share what is known that actually ends up demanding action, executive action based on the intelligence. Look, I used to be part of a system in the Cold War, a critic system where you had, if it was that critical, the information, the intelligence had to end up no later than 10 minutes from the time it was identified to landing on the president's desk. There was an entire system that was set up. So this idea uh, that you can't get the right intelligence to the president and then that what's referred to as the National Command Authorities in time uh, yeah, because of what, stovepipes and everything else, that's not actually true. There's a special system that was set up. Unfortunately, if you're gonna use it to preclude or to downplay, then guess what? You, you open up the system to, to corruption at the highest levels and, and the intelligence manipulated for your own ends. I mean, this, and so I, I'm the first to acknowledge that Cheney in particular um, and others, but they were you know, looking, looking for an excuse. Um, and that all, happened, that all went down on 9-11. I mean, it's, it didn't really matter. See, this is the this is to me one of the grand ironies here. It didn't matter what was actually known. 
it didn't matter that what was known in fact came out or what could have been known actually came out. 9-11 happened. So we now, you know, it's, it's American exceptionalism. We now can do whatever we feel like it. And remember, the global war on terror literally defined the entire globe as a battlefield. There were no boundaries for all intents and purposes. There were no restrictions. There were no constraints. It's whatever you could get away with. So this led to massive mission creep, massive mission creep. And all, the, all of the, the words of planting democracy in the Middle East, all that is just hokum. It really is. That was partly the pablum that you give to the masses, right, to accept uh, what the government was doing as justified. And I, I, there's two things here. I'll start with one, then the second. And then the defense of the imperial presidency, the defense of, of the, the striving to maintain global hegemony becomes far more important than even a deliberate attempt to allow or facilitate 9-11. By there, I'm talking about President Obama, because it's under Obama, if I understand it correctly, where you get pursued, uh, many other whistleblowers. But more, most importantly, Obama knows, has to know, because if Bob Graham knows, and I know Obama has got to know a lot more, he has to know how Cheney and Bush manipulated the system. 9-11 takes place, the, uh, a completely illegal war, at least under international law, but also really under American law, takes place in Iraq. Million, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people are killed. Minimum, but, yeah. Minimum. But yeah. the importance of not bringing Cheney and Bush to account for real war crimes it's more important to defend the imperial presidency because if you start going after them, you open up, talk about a Pandora's box. Oh yeah. The, the fabric of lies that the national security state has been built on right from 1947. No, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm well aware of that and it's, it's, this is the total hypocrisy of, of the Cheneys and, and the Bushes. I mean, they are war criminals. I'll, I'm the first to acknowledge that. Oh, they have never been held to account. Um, they claim they did all this, you know, uh, in the best interest of the country, when in fact, hegemony was in fact the, the priority. Um, and it didn't matter who got swept up, right? Um, and better, better to take it overseas. This is sort of the George Orwell, you know, Oceania is always at war with somebody. So obviously, if we can keep the war elsewhere, we don't have to worry about it coming back home, quote unquote, coming back home. And you've heard this argument even 20 years later. Oh, we haven't had a 9-11 since 9-11 as a reason why all this is justified. This is this extraordinary just just by saying we haven't had another 9-11 is if everything that was done since 9-11 is completely justified because no no other 9-11 has ever occurred. Um, wow, that is an incredibly uh, simplistic way of looking at all this. Uh, look, umpteen trillions and trillions, I mean, just it's extraordinary. The human cost alone is the tragedy, right, in terms of all of this the treasure that's been expended, right? You can imagine what could have been done with all of this 
in terms of the general welfare as opposed to the national security state. But that took priority. And, you know, we decided that wherever we decided, you know, wherever we chose to, to facilitate the global war on terror, whatever, wherever, wherever we took action, it was completely justified. It did not matter who got swept up. It didn't matter who got killed. It was all justified uh, because you know of 9-11. And the irony for me, I mean, this is historical irony. It was fundamentally a failure of the central government to provide for the common defense. Did not keep 2,977 souls uh, for out of harm's way that day. That never actually should have happened. So that sacrifice, the sacrifice of almost 3,000 people that day that weighs so heavily on me for the rest of my life, again, the what ifs of history, justifies everything else that happened after that, we're, we've paid an enormous price. Um, and now you see, you know, we're end, we quote unquote are leaving Afghanistan. We evacuated, you, you know, say we lost uh, Afghanistan and yet we still have a massive presence overseas. And it just, you know, this is George Orwell going, so we're gonna pivot to China. I mean, this it's, there is something that's per, the perverse incentive to facilitate a war economy. We're giving more money to the Pentagon than ever to keep all this going. And I'm well aware how few people are, you know, it's, it's, is in a small elite are making massive amounts of money uh, simply off, uh, off, off conflict or the potential for conflict. And, and being driven by uh, fear um, and we're in the process, not, not that, you know, obviously the Republic that I took an oath to support and defend, uh, there's not much of it left. And, you know, I, all empires end up, you know, being ground into the dustbins of history. Uh, there is no get out of history free card for the United States of America. There just isn't. And yet someone like me standing up to power ends up being massively abused by that same power because the last thing they want is to be held to account. And even when they are held to account, the catch 22 is we have the power, what are you gonna do about it? So remember, I saw this under Obama. I mean, people thought that Bush had so overreached that Obama was the anti-Bush and he was going to actually, quote unquote, you know, bring us back. Well, if anything, he actually expanded um, he never did shut down Gitmo. Uh, he expanded the, the mass surveillance regime, legalized it, okay, um, and and greatly expanded drone warfare um, and our wars overseas. I mean, it's and he ended up even before he got started winning the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, I, look. I, you probably you may have seen some of the interviews of late, even on mainstream media and some of these documentaries, they've interviewed people like Alberto Gonzalez, where even dismissing, right, that somehow we're exempt from the Geneva Conventions. Really? Wow. So because what? You know, we're America? Uh, wow, that's... You know, you talk about the trillions that have been spent. Maybe that was the whole point. Uh, you know, I talked, I interviewed Larry Wilkerson and, you know, who was Colin yeah, Powell's chief well. of staff. Yeah. You know, Larry said that the coin that really dropped for him, that yeah. just really turned his head around, is when he realized this actually was all about money making. 
Yeah. Like the Iraq war, the rest, I mean, all the high sounding uh, objectives, it was, it was banal. It was about money making. And, and I was just reading about uh, this woman a few years ago, Buddy Greenhouse, who's in the contracts division at the Pentagon, who finds out that Cheney's, after, not long after he's left Halliburton, but he still owns stock, Halliburton gets a $7 billion uh, no-bid contract to restructure Iraq's oil industry prior to the invasion of Iraq. And so, so Cheney's engineering a $7 billion contract for his former firm that he still has some ties to. But Obama does nothing about any of this. All no. of this, but, and, and, and I, and I got to say, this isn't about the morality or evilness of the Obama or even Bush and Cheney in a yeah. way. It's what you said earlier. It's the very structure of the militarization of the economy that gives such power. And there's something else has happened in the economy. And this is over the last, perhaps, last 20 years, 25 years, but particularly since 07, 08. The extent to which the financial sector now owns and controls the military industrial sector. Like you look at who owns the big arms manufacturers, it's the big asset companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and all the banks. So this merger of power into finance, which includes the military, like to me, it'd be a no brainer. If you're going to have need for arms manufacturing, shouldn't it be publicly owned and take the profit motive out of war? But of course, it's the profit motive kind of is the objective. Well, see... You talk about the profit motive. Look, NSA, when I was there in those days and weeks after 9-11, the workforce, and this the manager, senior manager referred to them as the workforce, but these are the people doing the real work of NSA, the quiet, silent warriors, right? Um, secret, right? Just doing their job. No one's ever going to know them. No one's going to be interviewed. They're not going to be going to the press or anything like that. Our, our, realize we had failed the nation. And it, they took it really, really hard. And I was going around campus with Maureen Baginski. And she says, no, you don't understand. NSA is a gift. 9-11 is a gift to NSA. We'll get all the money we want and then some. Wow, that that was the priority. It didn't matter, right, that it was a failure. It didn't matter what NSA knew or could have known or should have known. We were now going to get all the money we wanted and then some. And I still remember, just to give you a really really just right there in your face example of exactly that demonstrates exactly what we're talking about in terms of the extraordinarily corrupting influence of massive amounts of money, even within the intelligence community, which is part of the military industrial complex. The thing that Eisenhower warned us about, I was the 50th anniversary of NSA's secret creation, right? Remember, it was never actually created by legislation signed into law. It was literally created by a stroke of a secret pen held by Harry S. Truman in, in the fall of 1952. This is the 50th anniversary. So it's now, uh, it's in fall of 2002. And all you can imagine, it was all done up. We're all dressed up. The military is in their you know, class A uniforms. They had bands and everything else, flags. Um, and all of the principles former directors, very senior people were there. And the head table included Hayden, who was then director of NSA, George Tenet. And there was 
there was a number of presentations, right? All talking about the same old thing, but there was a part of which where one of the house Intel committee managers, staff managers was holding one of these, looks like a publisher's weekly, you know, mass this gigantic check and Hayden's up there with him on stage on the dais, right? Up there as he's handing him that. And we're talking about a check with nine zeros. Uh, and then on the left of those nine zeros is a number. We're talking multiple billions, okay? They're being plussed up for NSA. I couldn't hear Hayden's words, but I had a direct line to just seeing him from where I was sitting in the back. And he's looking down at Tenet, then back up at the check, pointing and then back to Tenet. And he's basically saying, George, I got my money. That this is the only thing that mattered. And we used to joke about people bellying up to this extraordinary bar where, I mean, look, I had people, and I realized the temptations were enormous. Create a company, hire a few people, you could become an instant millionaire uh, practically overnight because there is that much money that was being poured into the intelligence community as if money was actually going to solve the problem. No. It was actually to keep the problem going. So you have to keep the money flowing and the more, the better. So why would there be any accountability? You were not pervert. You were perversely incentivized to not solve any of the challenge problems that NSA would speak about in terms of the world and keeping people out of harm's way and the data problem. And how do you know what ace, you know, asymmetric threats are all about? Nope. We just want the money. And so, yeah, if it's a big, if it's a big data problem, when we just need big money, right? So you, you're going to, what are you going to do? You're going to further the hegemony of this type of structure. Uh, there is no incentive to reduce it. There's no incentive to cut it back because too many, too many careers are at stake. You know, too much profit motive is at stake. I mean, all you have to do is look at the major defense. I mean, I just... I just, look, I've gotten more, even perhaps even more strident as the years have gone on. And what are we actually creating here long-term? I think we know, right? And so all that money poured in Afghanistan for all the so-called aspirational goals, we never achieved that. You even find out that the money that was set aside for the general welfare, most of those were all blazing saddles, just all fronts, Right just to find a place to put the money because there was so much of it going around. So why should anybody be surprised by the institutionalization of corruption here on an incredibly vast scale? And so in a historical context, it reminds me of the fall of the Roman Empire. It just does. I'm working on a project with Daniel Ellsberg. I'm doing a documentary series based on his book, Doomsday Machine. And one of the interviews I conducted with him, he said, you know, he's come to the conclusion that the entire Cold War was essentially the rationale for a subsidization of the American aerospace industry. Yeah. That after World War II, they had so much capacity after building all the military that if there wasn't a massive militarization, yeah. they would have collapsed and they needed the existential enemy. And so yep. they- Yep, no, I, exactly.
No, I, and I was part of it. I mean, Ellsworth was part of it. I've had long conversations with him in the past, not recently, but in the past, going into great depths about this. Have you ever heard of a guy named Lester Ernest? I have not. Well, this is a st fantastic story, no, and I, I have I, not. I, I'm, I'm one of the few people that know this story, and I'm going to interview him again, but I have an interview with him. He worked, he got out of the armed forces in the late 50s, uh, computer technologist, one of the earliest, goes to MIT to work on the SAGE radar system, which is this massive gathering of computer power that's going to track Soviet bombers and then shoot Bomark missiles at them. So he's there, he's there about a week. And he tells me that he turns to one of his colleagues and he says, how did you guys solve the radar jamming problem? There's a long silence. He says, well, well, we did, we don't talk about that. It never worked. Not for a day. A trillion dollars over 25 years. And I asked him, how do you keep doing it? He says, we all got so cynical. We were all making so much money and we all, that you just figure if I don't do it, someone else will do it. It's all going to shit anyway. And you just, you go along. I decided not to go along. I, I mean, I just, I realized Ellsberg and I have talked about this. He thought a lot more people would step up in terms of Vietnam. He realized that very few people did other than Russo, right? They, no one else stood up along with them. And many, many people knew what he knew in terms of the bright and shining light of Vietnam and everything behind it. And you have to remember, Cheney knew, see, Cheney, when Reagan became president, you got to go back in terms of Cheney's own history. This really, Cheney, uh, Reagan's administration became the opening wedge to claw back all of those, quote unquote, lost powers uh, that had been constrained or locked down further because of all the scandals and all the exposure uh, from the 1970s, which was a period for, of my own civic awakening uh, as a tween then teenager, right? Seeing all this unfold, including the resignation of a president. Uh, Cheney was definitely going to do everything he could in terms of his life's work to restore the imperial presidency. The outcomes we see today are a result of actions that were taken starting under the Reagan administration. Including, uh, one should say Trump, because you look at Trump's election campaign and basically everything, including the alliance with the right-wing nas uh, Christian nationalists, all starts under Reagan. The whole model oh, yeah. is, is Reagan. Including so all, the ties, yeah. all the ties with the military-industrial complex that Reagan was the face for. Into who? I mean, this gets into you know, Cubono. Who benefits? It's pretty clear who benefits. So why would why would you disturb all that? And you know, the heck with everybody else. It doesn't matter. I mean, you you talk about a state welfare system. My gosh, it's you know, it's guaranteed billions every year. I mean, I saw that myself even during the post Cold War period, where I even got up to the management level at Booz Allen Hamilton. It didn't matter what you were selling, right? And you, you could actually sell it several times over to multiple government agencies, right? Because there was that much money. And so you're also seeing the revolving door. You're seeing, you know, the, one of the former directors of, of NSA uh, actually is a classic example of, of that. He used to be the head of the J2, then he became head of NSA, then he went to Booz Allen, then he became the director of, you know, the national intelligence, went back to Booz Allen. You know, they're being incredibly rewarded 
to, to as long as they continue to adhere to the corporate line, corporate, uh, to, to the national security establishment line. There's no way you're going to question whether or not any of this has real value other than the value to yourself and sustaining it all. And ultimately, the iron, it doesn't even matter. I mean, look, look at the F-35, an incredible waste. The total cost of the F-35, right? Trillion and a half, no one really knows. I mean, remember, the Pentagon has never been actually fully audited uh, after all of these many, many years. I mean, it's just, here's the money. Go do what you want with it. I mean, essentially, I mean, obviously. Help me understand something. Because, like, I've always thought Tony Soprano from the, you know, is a pretty good model for how all this operates. You know, you might have some principles that care about your own family, but everything, everybody else is expendable to your, and it's, it's just business. It's not personal. It's just business. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, okay, I get, I get all that. But here's where I, what I don't get, and maybe you can help me understand. Sure. These guys at the senior levels of the military-industrial complex who who say, oh, it's all a system. If I don't make the money, somebody else will make it. So I'll, I'll do it. But I don't get how they're willing to risk the apocalypse of the, this massive development of nuclear weapons because it's everyone I talk to that really knows it thinks it's inevitable someday we're going to blow ourselves up if, the, if, if this continues. Uh, so, I mean, even I don't think even Tony Soprano would invest in something that would likely blow his own family up. But look, we look how far we went with mutually assured destruction. I mean, just think about it. Mad, mad, right? It was the mad principle uh, that we wouldn't be mad enough as much as we had bristling with weapons pointed at each other that we would actually, I'm just telling you, even when I was in, how close we came to accidental war uh, through, through a nuclear exchange or the possibility of it. I mean, just, there's a number of incidents in, that, in fact, uh, we came very, very close, uh, right up to the line, in fact. This is something Ellsberg himself has been incredibly concerned about. Um, yeah, we're not rational creatures. I, I mean, that's part, of, that's part of the issue here. And I don't, you know, this is where you get into how cynical do you want to get? Uh, are we capable of, quote unquote, saving ourselves? Or do we just continue to devolve uh, just based on, you know, technology and these and these establishments of just ending up in a situation where what we just hold everybody hostage uh, or everybody else is held hostage to massive misuse and abuse of power? Um, I mean, that's a, I think it's an open question. Right. And it gets into what future do we really want to keep? Um, it's certainly a future that I don't want to keep. That's not. You know, that's not a future that I want to live to. I've already lived uh, enough of an Orwellian future to know on the surveillance side, what, what does it mean when a government comes after you with, with all their guns blazing? In some cases, almost literally, right? What happens when they abuse the court system and paint you into a, as, a, as essentially a traitor, enemy of the state? What happens when they say that you're actually worse than a spy? Um, because which you, all, all of which happened to you crime against because you committed crimes against the state for revealing state crimes wow so it's actually a crime to report a state crime okay wow but you were the one that gets punished um and look i came this close to ending up in prison people don't realize how close i came it's fortunate because of publicity fortunate because of the judge fortunate because of certain lawyers that i had 
who were able to hold off and I ended up, you know, pleading out, right? I, but I'm one of the very few that's been able to stay free as much as I, you know, was under the gun for so many years. But if I understand it correctly, you've never been able to get employment at your level of, of no. skill and experience. No, I, I, that's, that's a whole subtext, right? That, that uh, even Ellsberg himself tried he, to, with his connections, right? What, what came back to me, this is several months later and was like embarrassed. If this is even Ellsberg saying, Tom, no one wants to touch you. Now he knew why, right? But he was just surprised that even though I went free and didn't, up as a, didn't end up as a felon in prison, right? For many, many years, no one wanted to touch me. I, I was that much, you know, of I was that persona non grata, I guess you want to call it that, uh, as a PNG'd. Um, it's true. I, there's, you know, I, where I work, I still work. Uh, I don't talk about it much, but I still work for Apple. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't make anywhere near what I used to make, but. But I gotta, I gotta say one thing for all the critique of the big tech companies. I think it's something good that Apple did giving you, you know, hiring it. I mean, I'll give them credit for that. Yeah. It's probably why I'm still there in part, although I'm coming up, I'm rapidly coming up on what you would refer to as social security retirement. Um, you know, I have other interests in life um, and I've just dedicated the rest of my life going back several years to defending life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Those extraordinary aspirational words uh, in the Declaration of Independence, right? Which really was the basis for the American Republic. Uh, but here we've come, you know, 230, 40 years later. And, you know, where are we? Remember, it was always a grand experiment. That's all it was. There, there were no certainties. Uh, for all the faults and foibles of even the Constitution, a whole lot of things got kicked down, you know, the cans were kicked down the road. Um, I just have seen what I call the de-evolution of, 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 of our republic since 9-11 on an extraordinary scale. And I'm just not sure if we can, we're certainly not exempt from history. I just, what does it mean? You know, the American century was created post post World War II. If you take the long view here, no empire has ever been able to sustain itself, right? We're still, we, we still have archeological ar you know, digs on empires that, that exhausted themselves millennia ago. Um, you know, what are we gonna say millennia from now? Or let's go to the 23rd century. I mean, the Star Trek, right? 23rd century and look back. Well, uh, un un unfortunately, uh, because of the same mentality that governs the arms industry, it governs fossil fuel and our whole approach to climate. So I, I don't think we're getting to that century to look back the way things are going. Can we even survive that long? I mean, these pie in the sky thing, we're going to go to Mars. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. Or Elysium, I mean, the movie Elysium, right? Where the elite are going to go, you know, and create their own world above the world, right? Sure. They may be dreaming that, but that they're dreaming in Technicolor. Well, look, Tom, Tom, there's a phrase that I usually despise. And that's when people tell soldiers, uh, thank you for your service. It's so riddled with hypocrisy, sending children off to die in these pointless wars. But in your case, I actually could say it with some conviction. Thank you for, for your standing up. Uh, and, you know, there's a few of you that have done it 
and, and Ellsberg keeps asking more whistleblowers to stay, come forward. So let me just echo anyone watching this, uh, certainly at the NSA, who I, I guess keep track of these sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, we need more uh, of you. We need more Snowdens. Uh, so hopefully there will be some more because ordinary Americans really have to get the fabric of lies. Like, you know, there's such astounding uh, in, in various urban circles. Why do people believe in QAnon? Why all this crazy belief in conspiracies? Well, part one of the reasons, not only how bad the public education system is, but how much of the official narrative of post-World War II history is a fabric of bullshit. Yes. No, much of it is fabricated. It's a narrative. It's very difficult to have a counter-narrative because the establishment narrative is considered to be the history, right? We're the ones that define what that is. And part of the problem with empire, and we are an empire, as much as people don't like to say America's empire, we are, uh, then you are going to lead uh, much of the real history because you're an empire. Why would you want to embarrass yourself with the things that are unsavory, uh, including your own history? I mean, I mean, it's, but hey, you know, uh, if you, I look at, I can look at this sort of, again, historical ironies, or maybe the, you know, all history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it, but it does rhyme that, you know, we end up in the same place as the Roman empire. We end up in the same place as Alexander the great, you know, we end up in the same place as, as Genghis Khan. I mean, I just, the British empire, right. Um, Maybe maybe that is in part some of the hope. We got to remember Pandora's box is full of the theories, right? In terms of the Greek mythology, at the bottom of it, and this is something that I continue, I say, to hold on to, even though hope's not a strategy. Lies hope. Hope is at the bottom of Pandora's box. Um, I guess I wouldn't even be having this interview with you, Jay, if I didn't think there was if there was no hope left. It was just hope less then why would I even be bothered? I've had people yeah. tell me, Tom, you paid enough price. You just go off into the sunset, go fishing. You still got quite a few decades of your own life ahead of you. I could not stand by and become complicit in a crime, right? That my own country, my own government, and I end up having to defend a piece of paper, right? Defending the constitution against my own government starting from within. Um, so, I, I'm that is not lost on me, right? In terms in terms of of history and standing up. Now, some people said it none of it mattered. It was all a waste of time and everything else. But then how else? I mean, this is where that long arc of history, again, the hope, right? It doesn't take a majority, it basically a small minority, right? Margaret Mead, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of people in standing on that long arc of history and helping it bend toward justice. And I like to add and mercy. Um, I do, I do. And I realize there is a bit of a rose colored glasses here. I'm the first to acknowledge it, that I do tend to take on more of a Gene Roddenberry view that we can get past all this eventually. But I really do think that there are some real trials and tribulations uh, ahead of us. And I'll just say it as sort of the plural uh, for us as a, as a human species. Thanks very much for joining me.
And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the website. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, subscribe. Uh, most importantly, share this with everybody you know and sign up uh, on the email list. Uh, thanks again, and uh, come back again to the analysis.news.